Hello, interns. This is Megan Tyler, your trusty PGY2, here to talk about acute coronary syndrome. First, we'll start with our definitions of acute coronary syndrome. First being unstable angina, which is chest pain not relieved by rest. Next, we have an NSTEMI, which is chest pain not relieved by rest with elevated cardiac markers. And finally, the STEMI, chest pain not relieved by rest with elevated cardiac markers and EKG changes. So let's talk about presentation. The classic presentation is a patient coming in with chest pain that is substernal or mid-epigastric, radiates to the neck, the left shoulder, or left arm, abrupt in onset, and peaks at about two to five minutes after onset. The ones you need to worry about are the atypical presentations. This can include dyspnea, nausea, vomiting, diaphoresis, and these are more common in females, non-whites, and people with core morbid diseases such as diabetes, heart failure, stroke, and high blood pressure. Chest pain that is pleuritic and reproducible makes myocardial infarction less likely, however, still cannot rule it out. Almost every patient that comes to our ER with chest pain gets three things, EKG, a chest x-ray, and cardiac markers. So let's start with the EKG. Keep in mind that initial EKG may not show features of ischemia right off the bat. Consider obtaining serial EKGs every five to 10 minutes in a patient that has a pretty sound history and that you have a high suspicion. And as always, try to find an old EKG to compare. So let's go over the criteria for your classic STEMI on an EKG. This would be a new ST elevation and two contiguous leads that is greater than or equal to one millimeter. V2 and V3 are special. These have different elevation criteria. In females, it's 1.5 millimeter elevation. In males greater than 40, it's a two millimeter elevation. And in men less than 40, it's a 2.5 millimeter elevation. Some other clues that could tip you off would be a new ST depression of 0.5 millimeters in contiguous leads with T-wave inversions and two contiguous leads. Other things to look out for are hyperacute R-waves, new left bundle branch block, pathologic Q-waves, which could also represent old infarction, left ventricular hypertrophy, or an abnormal conduction. And remember, when it comes to ST elevations, concave is good and convex is bad. The progression of ischemia on EKG typically shows up as first acute TC prolongation, followed by hyperacute T waves, and then the presence of the ST elevation. Also, don't forget about Wellens criteria, which is biphasic T waves in V2 through V3, which suggests left main disease. Next, let's talk about anatomic localization of EKG findings. An anteroseptal MI is indicated by EKG changes in V1 through V3, and think of the left anterior descending artery as the culprit. Anterior MIs will have changes in V3 through V4, again, the LAD as the culprit. Your lateral MIs are going to have changes in V5 through V6, as well as 1 and AVL. Your posterior MIs may not be as obvious. If you see ST depressions in V1, V2, be sure to get a posterior EKG to look for elevations in V7 through V9. 
The culprit artery is either the lateral circumflex or the right coronary artery. Your inferior MIs are going to have ST changes in leads 2, 3, and AVF with ST depressions in AVL. And this is usually the right coronary artery. If you see ST elevations in 2, 3, and AVF, be sure to get a right-sided EKG to rule out an RV infarction where you would have an ST elevation of V4R. Now let's talk about bundle branch blocks, which can sometimes skew the picture. A right bundle branch block has a QRS greater than 120 milliseconds and has an RSR morphology in V1 through V3. ST elevations with a right bundle branch block are never normal. And if there's positive T waves in V2 through V3 with the bundle branch block, that is especially concerning. A left bundle branch block also has a QRS of greater than 120 milliseconds but it has a deep S wave in V1 through V3, like a W morphology. And you may also see tall R waves in V5, V6, looking like an M morphology. Where this becomes relevant in ST elevations is related to the Scarbosa criteria. Patients may have a left bundle branch block on their EKG with ST changes. However, they are not considered significant unless they meet the following criteria. What this would look like is a positive QRS with an ST elevation of greater than one millimeter or a negative QRS with an ST depression greater than one millimeter or excessive discordance, meaning that the QRS and the ST change go in opposite directions greater than one millimeter. Now let's talk about biomarkers. We mostly use troponin I as this one is the most sensitive reaches detectable level about two to three hours after onset and peaks after 12 hours. It can remain elevated for three to 10 days after the acute infarct. CK and CKMB are not used as they are not as specific for acute coronary syndrome. Don't forget other causes of elevated troponin, including dissection, rhabdomyolysis with cardiac injury, pulmonary embolism, hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, burns, infiltrated lung disease like sarcoid, amyloid, or scleroderma, heart failure, tachyarrhythmias, renal failure, and myocarditis slash pericarditis. Now let's talk about the management of acute coronary syndrome. We learned in medical school the classic mnemonic MONA, standing for morphine, oxygen, nitroglycerin, and aspirin. The role of morphine has come into question as it has not really showed to have any benefits and leads to more adverse effects. So if your patient's pain can be controlled by other measures, consider those first. Oxygen is pretty benign and should be used in patients, especially if they are hypoxic or working hard to breathe. Nitroglycerin should definitely be given unless you have a suspicion for a right ventricular infarct as these patients are preload dependent and could become unstable on nitroglycerin. The dose is... 0.4 milligrams up to three doses, and if needed, you can start a nitro drip. And most importantly, all patients should receive aspirin, a full 325 milligram dose. If the patient only took 81 milligrams prior to coming, give them the remainder of the 325 milligram. The use of other antiplatelets, such as Plavix, should be started in discussion with the cardiologist, as patients who may be candidates for bypass surgery 
should not be started on this medication. Next, anticoagulation should be started immediately as soon as you suspect acute coronary syndrome. Typically, we reach for unfractionated heparin as this can be stopped immediately prior to catheterization. The dose is a 50 to 70 units per kilogram bolus followed by a 12 units per kilogram per hour infusion. Low molecular weight heparin can also be used at a dose of one milligram per kilogram sub-Q every 12 hours. However, be careful of this medication in patients with renal failure. Beta blockers are not routinely given in the ER for acute coronary syndrome unless the patient also has a tachydysrhythmia, such as AFib, or if they have intractable hypertension despite nitrate administration. Now let's talk about reperfusion therapy. There are certain time interval criteria that are standard of care to meet in a patient with a STEMI undergoing perfusion therapy. If the patient presents to a PCI-capable hospital, the door to balloon time should be less than 90 minutes. If the patient presents to a non-PCI hospital, the door to balloon time is less than 20 minutes. If the patient presents to a non-PCI hospital and transportation to PCI cannot be assured in under the 120 minutes, thrombolytic should be given within 30 minutes of the arrival. If you go with the route of giving fibrinolytics, they can be given if the onset of symptoms is within 12 hours. They can sometimes be given within 12 to 24 hours if there is evidence of ongoing ischemia. Don't forget about your contraindications to thrombolysis, the absolute ones being prior cerebral hemorrhage, known CNS lesions such as a tumor, an ischemic stroke within three months, significant closed head or facial injury within three months, suspicion of an aortic dissection, and a current acute bleeding or bleeding disorders. For the relative contraindications, you'll probably look these up so I won't belabor them here. Next, we'll talk about heart failure. Your typical patient coming with heart failure symptoms will have shortness of breath, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea or orthopnea, requiring more pillows to sleep at night. They may have rails or wheezing on physical exam. Typically, they'll complain of a cough as well as fatigue, weakness, and lower extremity edema. We typically see left ventricular heart failure as this is caused by ischemic heart disease as well as hypertension. Right ventricular heart failure is not as commonly seen, but can be caused by left ventricular heart failure, a pulmonary embolism, valvular disease, pulmonary artery hypertension, or restrictive cardiomyopathy. Your first steps in managing a patient coming in with acute heart failure exacerbation is to go back to the ABCs. A lot of these patients may come in in respiratory distress due to cardiogenic pulmonary edema. Your best option if the patient is working really hard to breathe is to put them on BiPAP. This can help to open up the alveoli and allow for better ventilation. You may have to resort to endotracheal intubation if the patient is not able to maintain good saturations. Be careful in either situation as an increase in positive pressure can increase the intrathoracic pressure leading to a decrease in preload and therefore a decrease in cardiac output. So make sure to monitor the blood pressure very carefully. The next step is to optimize the patient's heart function to overcome whatever stress put the heart and heart failure in the first place. Usually this means increasing coronary artery perfusion, decreasing the blood pressure, and trying to get some of that fluid off of the lungs. Typically we reach for nitroglycerin as this increases coronary artery perfusion. You can start with sublingual doses, but eventually the patient will probably need to be put on a nitroglycerin drip, running at 10 to 20 micrograms per minute. 
that can be titrated upward to achieve the desired blood pressure. You can also try Lasix, although this tends to have a one to two hour delay of effect. The dosage is 0.5 to one milligram per kilogram IV push over two minutes. So what do you do if your patient is clearly in heart failure, but they're not hypertensive? In fact, their systolic blood pressure is a little bit soft, around 70 to 100. This is where you need to give the heart a little more squeeze. Reach for an ionotropic agent like dibutamine to increase cardiac output. If the patient looks a little bit worse, like they might have signs and symptoms of shock, you can try dopamine for more ionotropic support. Remember though that dopamine increases after load with its vasopressor effect. This could decrease the pulmonary congestion. Therefore, you want to be sure you use this in concurrence with a vasodilatory medication such as nitroglycerin or nitroprusside. If the patient is looking really, really sick with a systolic of less than 70, then reach for the trusty old levofed. And similar to dopamine, make sure you use a vasodilatory medication with a levofed. If you have a patient that comes in with more signs of right heart failure, or they do not have any pulmonary congestion, but their blood pressure is a little bit soft, try giving them some small fluid boluses of about 250 mLs of crystalloid to see how their blood pressure responds. You'll want to avoid nitrites and diuretics in these patients as they are preload dependent and these could worsen their condition. So there's your rapid fire review of our Grand Rounds Foundations material. See all your pretty faces tomorrow morning.